Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Soviet Union has admitted that an accident has taken place at a nuclear power station at Chernobyl in the Ukraine. But as usual, when disasters occur, the Soviet authorities have released very little information. The news agency TASS issued a report in which it spoke of... On the 26th of April 1986, the world witnessed the worst nuclear disaster in its history. When the reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine overheated and exploded, a plume containing radioactive material was sent two kilometers up into the Earth's atmosphere. Now, to put it into perspective, this contained 400 times the radioactive material of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Thousands of people died as a direct result of the blast, and even more people were displaced. An exclusion zone was created, 18 miles around the reactor. However, since 2010, tourists can now visit Chernobyl. In this, the final episode of Edgeland Series 1, Ash visits Chernobyl, before continuing to the end point of his Edgeland's itinerary in the unrecognised state of Transnistria. What Mr Shurath is urging is what he calls honest and open dialogue in a world increasingly influenced by technological advances. In a speech broadcast by Budapest Radio, he said everyone had an inalienable right to understand events both in the outside world and closer to home. He said that I think everyone has some perception of Chernobyl. Some people will remember when it happened. Some people won't, but they'll know it today as this kind of post-apocalyptic place. What was your perception of Chernobyl before you went there? When Chernobyl happened, I was three. So I don't remember the news reports. But I do remember learning about it in geography at school. And when you hear the word Chernobyl, it conjures this image in your mind, as you say, of this post-apocalyptic place. And it sits up there alongside Hiroshima, Fukushima, these great tragedies of this quite scary thing, which is radioactive or nuclear disasters. A quick summary of what, what actually happened. So they were trying to weirdly do a safety test on it, trying to run the reactor down. This is a reactor that could only run at a certain level and as a product of what they were doing, there was a build-up of steam and, and there was an explosion, a normal explosion. It wasn't a nuclear explosion, but because the heat was being driven by nuclear reactions, there was nuclear fuel inside there. So if you got an explosion at a coal power plant, it would explode and there would be coal flying out the top. There's an explosion at a nuclear power plant and there is nuclear material flying out of the top. And it got spread around this area. Radioactivity or radioactive waste can kill you really quickly. You can get radiation sickness and you can die immediately. Then there are the long-term effects. So we know that radiation causes mutations. So what they did was they, they created 
an exclusion zone, a narrow exclusion zone of 10 kilometres around the power plant and a wider one of 30 kilometres. And Chernobyl is right at the north of Ukraine. And both Ukraine and Belarus, which is to the north of Ukraine, and of course Russia, were part of the Soviet Union at the time. And the wind blew all of this waste that came out the top of the reactor north. By the time the fallout reached Sweden, a thousand miles away, it was still more than twice the natural level of radioactivity in the atmosphere. But radiation experts say there is no risk to anyone's health outside the Soviet Union. Scientists in Holland, Belgium and West Germany say there have been slight increases in atmospheric radioactivity, but the levels aren't serious. The West German authorities are... The primary effect is a product of something called... Um, I can't remember which isotope it is exactly, but an isotope of iodine. So we think of iodine as something you, that you use to clean wounds. Most people will know that it has a very important action in the body as well, particularly in relation to the, um, the control of the thyroid gland. Now, if you get a radioactive isotope of iodine landing on you at a certain time, the iodine in your thyroid needs to be replaced, and then it basically gets replaced by this radioactive iodine, if it's a lot of it around. And um, so people got thyroid cancers, kids born in the years afterwards in the affected areas had illnesses as a product of that. Probably a lot of people will be listening to this thinking, this is the last place on earth that I want to go to. What made you want to go and see Chernobyl? So I did A-level physics and I have an awareness of radioactivity. And I know that just because something's radioactive doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous. And so long as the levels of radiation are within a certain bandwidth, you're not going to get ill. In fact, for the inner exclusion zone, the background radiation is only eight times what you'd experience in the countryside in England. I wanted to go and see it because it symbolised to me, to an extent, the, the risk and arrogance of mankind. If you think about some of the things that we, we do as humans, some of the technologies we play with and presume that we are going to be OK playing with them, we just think, oh, it'll be OK oh, we can still keep pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, that'll be fine. We, we can control nuclear power plants, that'll be fine. I think it's important to remind ourselves every now and again that we cannot control these powerful things. One of the clothes. Um, clothes, yeah, and trainers, shoes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. That's it, now leaving Belarus. And now off to Ukraine trains rolling again. How did you feel crossing into Ukraine? Well, I would say that on my journey, Ukraine it felt like the crux of the journey. Because the reason I'd set out on this journey was to get an insight into the legacy of the Soviet Union on the border with Russia. And what had triggered me onto that was my trip to Estonia with the British Army. And what had caused that was the NATO decision to send the enhanced forward presence to Estonia largely as a product of Russian actions in Ukraine. So I was going to the place that had really started it all off. And I was really curious about Ukraine. The Russian origin myth talks about Kievan Rus, this semi-mythical kingdom of Slavic orthodoxy based around Kiev. So it was almost the root of Russia. It's a place where there is a war with Russia in the sense that Russia, well, they're not in open war with Russia, but Russia has annexed Crimea, which was a part of Ukraine. And Russia is supporting Russian-speaking separatists in Donbass, which is this eastern region. So like, coming from Britain, where, yes, we have Brexit, 
but the challenges to our sense of nationhood are not that other countries are taking parts of your country, whatever their, their reasons for justifying that, or supporting a war in a district of your country. So to go into a country where that was happening, I, I had a sense of trepidation. Hi. Hi. How are you? Just passport, yes? Thank you. What's the purpose of your visit? Tourism. Where exactly are you here? This is actually at Kiev station. So if you think about the way you normally go from one country to another, it's usually at the airport. And you get stamped at the airport, you go onto your plane, and then you get stamped when you come off the plane at the other end. But when you're on a train, of course, you can't do that. So what happens is you get to the last train station within one country. It stops. The immigration officials come on and they stamp your passports and do it on the train. Do you have a return ticket? Um, a train. Return ticket. No, I'm going to be exiting via Moldova. Okay. You're welcome. Please, please wait. Good wait. Yes, wait. Right, so I've arrived in Kiev. Some very friendly and attractive border guards. Gorgeous sunny day. Busy outside the front of the station. It's not really chaotic. Reminds me of the front of uh, one of the train stations in India. That's how busy it is out here. So you've just arrived in Kiev. What are your first impressions? The train station is amazing. It's huge. There's so many lines coming in. The massive departures board is just magnificent because it's in red and green and it switches from Ukrainian to English so the Cyrillic alphabet to the Roman alphabet. It's exciting because it has destinations all over Europe. You've mm. got Prague, there's Moscow, St. Petersburg, Vienna and this opportunity that you see before you Yeah, that seems so exotic to an Englishman where you, yes, okay, you can get on a train here and go to Wales or to Scotland but they don't feel like different countries in the same way that you can get on a train in Kiev and go to Vienna or Moscow. Yes. There's an increased exoticism about that. Can you explain to me what are the actual logistics of getting into Chernobyl? Because it feels like it might be somewhere that's quite hard to get to. Chernobyl is the reactor that exploded. And there's actually a town called Chernobyl nearby. And around the reactor, they've got this exclusion zone. So you're not allowed to go in. And there's a 10 kilometer exclusion zone and a 30 kilometer exclusion zone. And there's checkpoints on the roads and I'm not sure if there's a fence all the way through the forest but you're not supposed to go in. This is controlled very heavily by the Ukrainian security services. To get there you can only go there with an official authorised guide which comes from the ministry that oversees this. So you have to apply to them. Now you don't have to do all of that yourself. There are companies which have one of these official guides with them at all times who can do that whole thing for you. Chernobyl now has thousands of tourists visiting it. Hmm. It's one of the biggest tourist sites in Ukraine. I'm stood about 300 metres from a gigantic silver shed or hangar, and it's this shiny stainless steel space-age construction. And this is the new cover or sarcophagus of reactor number four at Chernobyl. 
1986, reactor number four had an accident. There was an explosion and radioactive material was spread out across the surrounding area. And as I stand here, I can point my uh, a radioactive measure, a guided counter that measures civets per hour. And it currently records 1.3, which is only about eight times what you'd get in London. So clearly the sarcophagus is doing its job now. Now, I know that you're aware that it is safe to go here. You've been told that it's safe to be in Chernobyl. But did a small part of you start to panic when you were holding this Geiger counter and it would start beeping louder and louder? So what you can hear is the radiation count increasing. You've got that ticking and it's recording the the rate of radiation entering the Geiger counter. And you hear it going faster and faster and faster and then it reaches a point and suddenly the Geiger counter starts beeping an alarm. The first time that happened, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Do we have to go? Is it like an air raid siren? Uh, it turns out actually you can choose what to set the alarm level at. So it's not as if suddenly you've reached an incredibly dangerous level. But it just shows that it has gone beyond the background radiation you're normally used to. That is because you do have these areas that have high levels of concentration. And areas where the cloud went, these pockets of moss, these areas where water collects, areas where wood was buried... All of these have much higher levels of radiation. And actually, you're driving around and um, there are just radiation signs planted in the ground at certain places. Oh, right. Okay. Where they buried stuff. One of the places it's marked is where these vehicles, what did they, what did they call them? The liquidators. The liquidators were the people who went around and cleaned up the, the zone, washing down buildings, burying these trees. Some of them actually died of um, uh, radiation-related illnesses afterwards. Acute radiation syndrome killed many firemen immediately after the accident. Senior officers were therefore well aware that such radiation could kill in under an hour. In theory, On that, I met a guy in Estonia whose dad had been taken from work, stuck on a train and sent to Chernobyl as part of the cleanup. He'd worked in a uh, factory... And one day his boss said, right, I need you to go and deliver this truck to this army base. Got in, they shut the gate, and he said, what's going on? He said, well, you're, you're going to work. They put him on a wagon, took him down to Chernobyl, and he spent the next six months being part of the clean-up of Chernobyl. Six months. Yeah. And his, his family had no idea where he'd gone. And then a couple of weeks later, they get a letter saying, oh, by the way, your husband has been reassigned for clean-up duties. The first thing what the, the officer said to the older guys, you need to know only one thing, you came here, you will never go back to your families. One thing, that's about it. And now we are selecting you uh, who is doing what. But the funny thing was that, uh, it's not funny at all, but uh, the thing was that my mother knew that my father is at work doing whatever he needs to do coming back home I don't know six, seven, eight doesn't matter in the evening but where's my father? where's my husband? thinking okay maybe he went out with you never know guys happens sometimes but my father didn't come home I was one and a half months old my brother was one and a half year old two boys and my mother
walking around most of that exclusion zone, you're absolutely fine. You know, people work in the exclusion zone. People still live in the town of Chernobyl. Mm. The town of Chernobyl has residents that live there. Is that safe? Are they, is that all right? There? Apparently so. And there's this other thing, which is called the, um, the settlers. In this exclusion zone, in the days immediately after the event, the Soviet Union evacuated everybody out of the exclusion zone. Some of these people have returned. They've returned to farm areas that nobody is allowed to farm. Now, it's entirely up to them to do that. And it's hard to say to these people who, who were from there, you, you can go back, but it might kill you. Yeah. And it turns out there's some really interesting statistics that these people have lived longer than their um, peers who were evacuated out and uh, left in other places. So what it suggests is there are other things that affect your longevity. It's not just the effects of radiation, but also your happiness. You know, these people yeah. have gone back to the home that they built and they raised their children. And we actually went to meet one of these settlers, Nikolaevich, and he had been evacuated from the home that he'd built with his wife and raised his children in. And he chose to resettle and go back there. So that's the village Parishiv, which used to be inhabited by about 800 people before the accident. Nowadays, the population is just three. We are going to visit one of them. His name is Ivan Ivanovich. So Ivan is his name. His father's name was Ivan. So that is why Ivan Ivanovich, that's what we have. Ivan Ivanovich. Давайте осудивайте, як я вам хлопцю православно зараз поможуть. Доброго дня. He's saying I'm working at the garden. I'm saying like I brought some help. <laughs> like there are men who will help you. He like, says, oh, they can't help me. No, 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 so he turned this whole garden to him by himself. Yes. I feel like it must be quite strange for this guy. So he's living here in a place where he's lived for a long time, and there are suddenly loads of tourists coming in to see, essentially, this place because it is a disaster zone. That must be quite a strange phenomenon. I was asking the, the girl who runs the tours about that. And she said, well, remember, there's lots of old people living in the countryside of Ukraine who have nobody to talk to and just get on with their lives in their houses. Maybe their kids have moved a long way away or maybe they've died and um, they're completely alone. And she said, at least for these guys, they've got somebody visiting every day asking them about their lives. So they feel important and they feel like they can add value. And this guy was... I think he'd been one of the managers in the cleanup and knew a lot about it. So he's somebody that was a subject matter expert, if you like. And he was able to talk about his knowledge and his experience and his expertise every day. And he had visitors. And that made him feel valued and important. So there's this weird counterpoint to that, which is that in some ways he has more than people that live far outside of the disaster zone. And one of the challenges is because it's a controlled area. He can't sell any of the produce that he makes. So what it means is that the people that visit him every day, they always bring him some food or some gifts or some you know, stuff that he needs, ranging from uh, soap to asparagus. Mm. And and he seemed to enjoy our visit. Yeah. So for three days he So his visitor came every day to see him. So for a guy like Ivan, he's he's out here and you farm your own potatoes. And then other than that, 
all of your supplies when people come to visit, they bring you supplies. But the shop, if they know that somebody if somebody is visiting. Is it is it hard to live in the exclusion zone or I guess he doesn't have anyone to speak to for the rest of the time, so when people turn up... Yeah, he likes talking to people. He was quite glad to see but here he is, on all, pretty much on his own, out in the middle of the exclusion zone. From one philosophy graduate to another, how do you feel about the idea of... On Instagram, there's a hashtag, ruin porn. And people go and seek out abandoned places, and you get these lists on websites of the 20 spookiest places in the world and stuff. And I suppose my question is, where's the line between curiosity and voyeurism? I mean, all tourism really is an element of curiosity and voyeurism. It's just what we consider is acceptable. And how do you base that? Is that based on what the people of that place that you're visiting choose to share? The Ukrainians are really happy for people to know about Chernobyl. It's an internal education program. They take school children to go and visit it. So they don't have a problem at all with people seeing it. The whole notion of going to see places that are tragic, I think there's an important education element to it to stop us making the same mistakes again. And if we can turn that into a force for education and good, then I don't really have a problem with it. We're on our way back out of the 30 kilometer exclusion zone limit. And there's a fence all the way around the exclusion zone, about 30 kilometers from where the accident happened, the power station. It's not a perfect circle. It's been shaped to reflect the distribution of radioactive particles as a product of the wind and cars are checked on the way and passports are checked and there's an information centre for the tours and the tourist industry for the Chernobyl exclusion zone is growing it's a popular trip for anyone who comes to Ukraine now yeah. and it's an amazing insight into seeing the effects of human hubris and arrogance and also a sign of how quickly nature takes back over again when humans leave. After visiting Chernobyl, Ash continues his itinerary south, where he crosses over the border into Transnistria. Now this is an unrecognised state, sandwiched in between Moldova, Ukraine, Romania and the Black Sea. Odessa train station is at the end of a line and what with Odessa's 
seaside feel, it definitely has a familiarity to Brighton train station. And I'm getting on the Chisnow train and on the front of it there is a Moldovan flag. So this is the train that goes from Odessa to Chisinau, which is the Moldovan capital. And it has one stop along the way and that is the city of Tiraspol. Tiraspol is technically the second largest city in Moldova, but it's in the breakaway republic of Transnistria and that's this sliver of land on the eastern side of the uh, Dniester River and uh, that is where I am stopping for the evening. So we've now got off the train in Tiraspol and waiting to try and sort out, what is it, like an entry slip? Uh, registration. registration. Registration slip, but the office is closed, but it looks like the guards are appearing. Well, it's open now. Open now. Yeah. You do some uh, live vlogging or something? No, just oh. a podcast. Microphone zoom, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I like this one, yeah. They're, they're great. If you were to come around the Black Sea coast, the next country you'd come to would be Romania, then Bulgaria, then you get to Turkey. So directly west of Odessa is Moldova. Now, Moldova is between Ukraine and Romania. So going west, you'd go Odessa, Moldova, Romania. And I was finishing my journey on the Moldovan-Romanian border. However, between Moldova and Odessa, there's another little place called Transnistria. Tell me about Transnistria. Transnistria is technically part of Moldova. Like many parts of this world, you've had empires growing and shrinking, people moving about, bits owned by different countries at different times, and the legacies of the First World War and the Second World War in particular have shaped this region. And what you now have is a Russian 14th Army based in Transnistria. And the Russian 14th Army is the, their peacekeepers. But they basically stand inside Transnistria with guns and tanks stopping the Moldovans coming in. Okay, so that sounds like it's quite a tense place. What was it like when you actually got to Transnistria? So one of the things about this journey is people told me that there were two places that I'd be visiting that would be like going back in time into the Soviet Union. One was Belarus and one was Transnistria. So Belarus did not feel like going back in time to the Soviet Union. Transnistria felt more like it. And there's a couple of curious things there. You can't get cash out of most of the ATMs. How come? Because the, is it the ruble, so the Transnistrian ruble, is a valueless currency. It's only worth any money inside Transnistria. But there's a few banks run that allow you to withdraw money. Either way, it's, it's, it's not connected to the international world in the same way. The only brand I saw there was Andy's Pizza, Okay. Andy's Pizza, which I think is a Romanian pizza restaurant, and uh, this company called Sharif, one of those multi-layered companies that does everything from corn farming through to running the banks. So Sharif is basically the oligarch-owned state industry. So, Roman, what is this that we're seeing tonight? It's 25 years of, of uh, birthday of Sheriff, 25 years of his him existing here and talking about him it's uh, one pretty much one man who owns the company and he owns everything here networking uh, television gas station uh, uh, supermarkets quint uh, factory which is cognac and vodka factory uh, name something and it'll be shares <laughs> so not everything everything uh, but ma the major businesses here owned by sheriff so you can still have your own business but small one and not compete with Sheriff, for sure. And so the, the company's existed for 25 years and he's just throwing a big party in the centre of town. And 
people are walking away from me now because I think most of it's finished, but it's just a massive free party in the middle of town. It is, yeah, right in the center, and he called uh, Stas Mikhailov. Stas Mikhailov, you can, if you can Google him, he is the most uh, famous Russian pop song so who are you with here? So Roman is a a Transnistrian local, and he's a he's a tour guide. He works with a guy called Tourist Paul Tim. I think we'll hear about in a bit. Roman was great because he was my route into understanding Transnistria. And Transnistrians they view themselves as Transnistrians, but they they primarily identify as Russian. And he was introducing me to this this sheriff person, and sheriff was basically Transnistria's oligarch. And he brought up everything in the post-Soviet era and now runs the entire country's economy. And is he, is Sheriff, it's quite peculiar to imagine this figure who's kind of in charge of everything. Is he loved or did you feel like he's feared? Well, when you talk about imagining him, I imagined him to be, because I'd heard of, uh, there's, there's uh, I, I know there's big industries and I think it's in Sudan called Sharif. So I had this weird image of this, sheriff-type cowboy person who was an Arab but uh, had certain Russian elements, like drinking vodka with a big moustache, a cowboy hat, uh, wearing Arab dishdash. That was, that was a weird image I created in my head of this sheriff character. And I don't think people feared him. You know, they viewed him as the maybe the benefactor. I think one of the things Sheriff has done is he's made lots and lots of money out of Transnistria, but he's also given some of that back. And we're now on a bus which is known as a Marshrutka, isn't it? That's right. And so we are heading out of the city of Tiraspol towards the countryside. It's not quite got chickens and stuff, but it's a it's you know it's a nice mini bus. It's busy. Everyone's sat on it, having a nice time. And uh, so there's more to Transnistria than just the city of Tiraspol, and I think that's probably something people forget. It's quite a long region, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can go three hours either direction to the north or south. And actually, uh, when I do take tourists out of Tiraspol, it's their favorite part. And it's my favorite part, too, because you get into the untouched, I call it the Soviet wasteland, uh, where people live naturally like they did in 1950. I mean, homegrown food, believe it or not, you can get food without chemicals wrapped in plastic. It is possible. Yeah. So um, we do that here. We go uh, get... uh, goat cheese and real homegrown vegetables and most importantly a homemade wine and a homemade vodka called Semagonke and we party with the village people and every village even if it's 200 people has all kinds of Soviet uh, monuments and artifacts still intact as it was in 1950 and partying with the village people there's no YMCA I take it (laughs) we do it and we love it who are you with at this point so I'm with a guy called Tim and Tim goes by the name of Tim Tiraspol, or Tiraspol Tim. He is the only foreigner living in Transnistria. The only one? The only one, so he tells me. Yeah. And he is quite the character. So he's an American who had ended up in this unrecognized, pseudo-illegal state in Southeastern existence. Um, so, like, for example, when I was arrested by KGB, uh, when the officers went home, and it was after 10 o'clock at night, the guards came to uh, my cell, and they brought uh, vodka and sallow and vegetables, and we had a party, and they just wanted to talk English with me and hang out. And uh, 
they fed me and, and gave me vodka and helped me sleep on that wooden cot, believe me, because I needed a little vodka to sleep on that wooden cot. So the people, the culture is great. And if you can get past the broken bureaucracy, everything's fabulous. And But tourists aren't going to have to deal with this broken bureaucracy. I've had to deal with it because I do business here and I live here. Um, nowadays, everything are be- better. So we're getting off the bus now. Спасибо, до свидания. So this is the entrance hall for the... So this is like a house of culture, is it? Yeah, this is the house of culture. And you can see uh, they've got murals here that uh, depict uh, the harvest of the workers because this whole area is agriculture. And all these murals date back to the the Soviet Union. Well, this is very Soviet. This is where Transnistria really is, this legacy of Soviet... Sovietism. One thing the Soviet Union did, and in the villages where they had communal farms, they wanted to create a house of culture so that the people could be cultured and entertained with, you know, really quality classical music and uh, quality art, actually. Inside is this beautifully decorated building with amazing Soviet realist murals all over, showing the the workers striving to achieve great things for the glory of the Soviet Union, hammers and sickles all over the place. How far off the tourist trail are we here? Transnistria is off the tourist trail. You know, the the only person I know that runs the tourism in Transnistria is Tourist Paul Tim. So he is the tourist trail, wherever he chooses to take you. And when I spoke to most Transnistrians, they say, why are you coming to Transnistria? This is a place that everyone wants to get away from because there's nothing interesting to see here. There's just old stuff and relics of a past. But the reason why Soviet stuff is interesting is there's a sort of fetish element to it of this great and almighty ideology that failed. And it's curious to imagine living under a different ideology. But it's got these relics there and they've not been modernised or scrubbed out. Did you find that people you spoke to in Transnistria would say that they are Transnistrian or they'd say I'm Russian or would they say I'm Moldovan? Uh, none of them would say they were Moldovan. I spoke to a couple of really good English speakers in Transnistria and asked them this, and they have a fairly legitimate fear, I guess, that if they didn't have the Russians there, they would be overwhelmed by the Moldovans who want that piece of land back. And they just want to be able to get on with their lives and speak their own language and carry on with their own culture because their culture is Russian. They speak Russian. They listen to Russian music. They watch Russian TV. So they are Russians in Transnistria. Uh, Thanks very much. Yeah, man. Uh, Stay in touch on uh, Facebook and uh, our email. Definitely add me on Facebook. I have done. Roman, been good, mate. Thanks so much. And so uh, now I travel from the country that does not exist. To a country that does exist and claims this country. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be boring. Grab a few people while you're in Kitchenu and uh, add it to your podcast. You know, what is your perspective on Penistrova? Yeah. On what? Penistrova? Oh, uh, Transnistria. It's, it's, we, we call it Penistrovia in Russian. 
This is not independent Slovenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody well, here calls uh, it Right now, of course. No, oh, no, no. It's uh, peacekeepers. Oh, this is the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers. We have the peacekeepers. Uh, oh, they're the Russians. The Russian peacekeepers, yeah. Oh, with a. Oh, I can see that. It's a BMP 90. Yeah. So this is this is approaching the border with Moldova now. Approaching? This is getting near the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, about close. Oh, oh, the border appears to be closed. Ah, biedish to doy, serious, listen. Kudoy. No, yeah, to so you're approaching the border here. What's going on? So there's this weird thing in Transnistria where it's internationally considered part of Moldova, but Moldova has no control over that space or those borders. So there is an internal border within Moldova that Moldova doesn't want to recognise because that would be legitimising the reality of the creation of a second state. Okay. There was no passport check. And there was no, it wasn't like crossing other things that normally they'd be, oh, right, I'm now in Moldova. There was a chicane, you know, where you put a couple of barriers across the road so the cars can't whiz through and they slow down. But that was it. There was no other serious border control on the road that we went through anyway. Maybe there are in other places. Not even to Russia? No. No. No, not no even Russia. to Russia. Only Moldova. Oh, oh, is this the border? Border, yeah. Oh, wow. So we're about to leave. Um, this is Moldavian... Border. Mo- ah, so this is a, this is a Moldavian bulletin. The identity. Uh-huh. So do we have to give these guys my And sorry. So this is an internal. No, no, no. We come to Moldova just for McDonald's. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because we don't have McDonald's in Transnistria. He's too busy checking Facebook. <laughs> Maybe. So, <laughs> so, my first encounter with the Moldovian government is a guy looks up from his phone and waves us through. Lovely. Well, I'm in Moldova. Yeah. Already, yeah. What do you think the future holds for Moldova and Transnistria? Moldova is one of these places that is becoming, a, to an extent, a literal and an ideological battleground between this east and west. I think. Until the end of the Soviet Union, Moldova provided something like 80% of all the wine that went into the rest of the Soviet Union, or Russia in particular. Mm. And this continued for many years until 2008. And then as a product of Moldova moving more towards Europe, Russia imposed sanctions. And that affected Moldova massively. But what Moldova's done is it's found new markets. It's improved the quality of its wine. It's improved its standards. And it now exports to the European Union instead. These things will continue to happen, these, these tugs of war over countries about where they sit and where they fit. In all cases, let's hope it doesn't flare into war and that a peaceable ground can be found. I guess the question's more for what happens to Transnistria because you can't force those people to become part of Moldova. In fact, when they tried to do that in the early 90s, that's what led to the civil war. I guess it's whatever the people want it to be. For the people that live on these borders, or that live in the Edgelands, these geopolitical games that are being played at the top are irrelevant to them. You know, the Russian people, the Russian speakers I met in these places, they just want to be able to get on with their lives and not be told they have to be part of Moldova or have to be part of Ukraine. And if that means that Russia's the only place that can protect them, you can understand why they move in that direction and they 
make the choices they do. But they'll still want to pop across the borders to get their McDonald's when they can. Let me see. Scar 3A. 3A. Apartment. It's apartment 315. Yes. Hello. <laughs> How did you know it was me? Did you hear me running around? Oh, you were speaking English. How are you? Lovely to meet you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of Edgelands Series 1. Thank you so much for following Ash Bardwaj's adventure as he has travelled the entire length of Russia's European border from Arctic Norway all the way down to the unrecognised state of Transnistria. Now, if you want to listen back to any of the previous episodes, they're all there on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. You can also listen on telegraph.co.uk forward slash edgelands, where we've uploaded some videos and photographs and written features from Ash Bardwaj himself. It is also on telegraph.co.uk forward slash edgelands, where you'll be able to find future episodes of the podcast. Watch this space. Edgelands was produced by David Maguire. Thanks also to Pete Norton, Andy McKenzie and Rob Owers from The Telegraph. I've been Greg Dickinson. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.